0: Loops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford.
1: Good morning and welcome and a real pleasure to have this show back on the air and thanks everyone who reached out wondering where it was. We are back now for a third season of Inside Politics. Uh, Exciting show ahead. We'll have Attorney General David Eby on the back end, but first to the panel from the Vancouver Sun, Vaughn Palmer and Rob Shaw. Welcome to both.
2: Good to be back on the air with
1: you, Shane, and congrats on the new show. That's terrific. Oh, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Good to hear your voice. Uh, Welcome to Rob as well. Good morning, uh, gentlemen. Always good to talk to you. Uh, great to get the show up and rolling. Let's talk about some stuff because we we got a lot to catch up on. And uh, we'll work our way backwards here. The speculation tax, which has been a bit of a fire starter, uh policy for the provincial government, took a little turn this week as they sort of went the negative options billing route. I talked to Carol James about this uh, this week, and she said, "Listen, hey, this is this is no big deal. This is like the homeowners grant. It's the swipe of a pen. I mean, three to four minutes tops, unless you're in some kind of complicated financial." situation situation. You guys have seen the forms, you went through the rigmarole. Is that a fair comment, or is it something a lot more complicated than that, Vaughn?
2: I think it is more complicated. In fact, our own ministry says it could take you up to 20 minutes to fill it out. Oh, and by the way, if you have to do this, which you will, if you're a homeowner in any of these affected communities, um, if the house is in the name of you and your spouse, as many people do, you both have to fill out the the It's not just how long it takes to fill out the form or whether or not it's a nuisance. And some people in Vancouver will have to do three of these because there's an empty homes tax there as well. Um, Part of it is that people are just, I think, not prepared for this. They're not prepared for what the government is going to do if you don't apply, which is to treat you like a speculator and tax you accordingly. So if you forget to fill out the homeowner's grant, and it's a stroke of a pen, you just don't get the grant. If you get your letter for the speculation tax exemption, and you go, well, I'm not a speculator, it doesn't apply to me, and you don't apply, then around about April, you're going to get a tax bill, and they're going to tax you the max that they can under the speculation tax, and then you'll have to go back over it and talk them out of it and all that, those bills will not be small uh, for a million-dollar house. Uh, the bill would be, uh, this year, about $5,000. So that's going to come as a shocker to people who you know are away or aren't clued in on this or aren't going to realize that this tax applies to them and that their government is going to treat them as speculators even if they're not.
1: Rob uh, James also blames the Liberals. Says, "Hey, listen, they're just they're playing some politics with this thing. So, is this bad policy from her government, or is this the Liberals looking for traction?"
3: Not playing politics, my God, Shane. That, that, <laughs> no. Um, well, look, like this this rollout of the actual exemptions for the speculation tax makes perfect sense if you consider what a gong show this tax has been um, since the moment that it was introduced. Unclear, um, constantly changing three times changed since the budget via press release. Uh, The NDP had been on the defensive since the moment they introduced this thing. It's not even a tax that targets speculators. It's a tax that targets empty homes, so the title is wrong. So when you think of it in that way, you know, coming out with a kind of bungled, um, ill-timed, tone-deaf, negative option billing approach to, you know, you're a speculator until... Proven otherwise um, is is right in line with how this tax is gone. I, I know there are a lot of new Democrat supporters out there, kind of, <clears throat> you know, uh, pushing this stone uphill, trying to uh, make it sound like it's just like the homeowner grant. Or what else are we going to do? You know, Premier John Horgan, <clears throat> tongue in cheek, yesterday said, "Well, what else are we going to do? We're going to put, we're going to say, hey, dear Mister Speculator, put your hand up if you're if you're going to be taxed." Well, it sounds a little ridiculous, but. It's kind of how we do our annual income tax declarations. The Canada Revenue Agency doesn't say you are all multimillionaires until you fill out your form and check the right boxes. Uh, But the government doesn't want to go that route, doesn't appear to have any other options, is on the defensive once again, is grasping at ways to portray this tax as anything other than a series of self-inflicted wounds. Um, You know, the NDP shooting themselves in the foot once, twice, three times on this thing, and now they have a by-election. I able to contend with yeah. where this is an issue at
1: the same time so yeah we'll get some ways it,
3: it makes perfect sense when you, when you think of the legacy of the speculation
1: Act. <laughs> uh, my question is and you know maybe it's a little it's a little knee-jerk but uh, you got over 1.5 million le- forms of uh, letters going out from the finance ministry who itself says only 32,000 people are really on the hook so Vaughn if they can say with fact that there's only 32,000 people why don't they just deal with those 32,000 leave the rest of us out of it
2: uh, very good question <laughs> they also say that 20,000 of those people will be British Columbians, which, you know, you talk to a New Democrat on this, and they go, oh, this is all about foreign speculators. Well, not only are they not necessarily speculators, as Rob said, they're not necessarily (laughs) foreigners either. Uh, A lot of the people that are going to be nabbed in this are British Columbians who own two places, and they may own them for a number of reasons. They may be a recreational place. They may work in two communities. They may, whatever reason they may have, uh, that's who's going to be captured. Well, As several people have pointed out this week, Shane, if you wanted to go after those people and send them a tax notice you could figure out who they are through the land titles office. That would, that would give you the pool of people that are likely to do this, because I, I'm, you're quite right, Shane. How does the government know there are only 32,000 people out of 1.6 million that are going to be nabbed by this? Well, because they've done their research already. So you start to go, is this all about um, publicity? creating the impression that they're cracking down on on, on uh, speculators, creating a database base for other kinds of taxation inquiries. I mean, I can see why people are suspicious about this. Uh, people are suspicious about why... Both spouses in a marriage have to file. That doesn't happen with a homeowner's grant. That doesn't, you know, I mean, it, It's there's a whole bunch of things about this that make you suspicious. And the other thing is, and, you know, you're right, the New Democrats, they get asked about this, they say, oh, that's just the liberals talking. Actually, the the harshest attack on the speculation tax this week came from Andrew Weaver. <laughs> yeah. The NDP's partner in power sharing, he called it a stupid tax, said the Greens hate it, says his mission in life is to persuade the new Democrats to get rid of this tax. He says the Greens have taken all kinds of crap for their support for this thing. So, you know, so much for the idea that it's just the liberals. In fact, it's the guy who's keeping the NDP in power who's launched the harshest attack on this tax. And, by the way, he's been doing that since it was first announced a year ago.
3: Yeah, called it a just dog's... To change, just to- to add to that, like I think Vaughn is correct, and I asked this question to the government: Like, yeah. why are you sending out 1.6 million letters to get 1.56 million returns of exemption? Yeah. Yeah. Why do you and why can't you identify these 32,000 people? In fact, because the government has also changed their revenue forecast of the tax, they must have a they must have a sense. And one of the answers they gave me back amidst the boilerplate was that the process will help the province identify satellite families and foreign owners. And that has been a problem um, that you've heard David Evie and Carol James say repeatedly. They don't don't really know who the satellite families are. They know they're out there. They're working with the Canada Revenue Agency and the federal government to identify them, try to figure it out. This is in part a data collection mechanism to help government with other parts of the tax. And we are all going to have to return letters to help the government identify the people that it probably should have identified long ago. But doesn't have enough information on now
1: to go after them directly. Yeah, no, I would absolutely concur. Matter of fact, I asked Carol James that 32000 question, and her response was, essentially, it is basic data collection. So I think they're looking to grab information and perhaps out some people that weren't on their radar before. Uh, we, Rob, you raised this by-election thing. This does come, you know, we're about halfway mark uh, before the January 30th vote in Nanaimo, a crucial by-election riding where the speculation tax does apply. So I guess to, to both you and Vaughn, I'll start With Yvonne first. Impacts here because Smitty's reporting some pretty panicked NDPers behind the scenes.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the two of the more interesting exchanges in the Capitol this week, uh, with uh, involving one of our colleagues, was um, one of the senior government communications people comes to one of our colleagues, and the, the day this story broke on two, late Tuesday afternoon, Rob's story was in the paper on Wednesday, and then it really erupted on Wednesday. So this comms guy says to one of our colleagues, um, "Where did this story come from?" <laughs> and, and our colleague says, You people not even read your own press releases?" Because it was in a government press release on tuesday afternoon from the ministry of finance right and then you know another question another exchange this week was to a cabinet minister about you know what do you think about the timing of this thing happening in the middle of the nanaimo by election because one of the targeted communities is nanaimo how did that happen and the minister goes yeah well we're asking that question as well oh lordy it 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 clear i mean and Look, you know how government works, right? Never assume a conspiracy where mere incompetence will account for it. <laughs> um, this is just something the finance ministry put out, I'm guessing, without any senior political people in the government even reading the thing and going, We're not doing this in the middle of the Nanaimo by election. Well, now they have. And yes, I think Mike is right. Uh, you know, the New Democrats are going, We didn't need this in the middle of the by election. It's an embarrassment. It's an issue we didn't want. Uh, look, the Nanaimo by election is. A whole bunch of factors there, but uh, given the importance of that by-election to the survival of the government, um, this is quite something to have done in the middle of the campaign.
1: Yeah, and we're going to focus on the Nanaimo by-election a little later in the show, but uh, Rob, you're a Nanaimo guy. Your sense whether this is going to give some steam to the liberals or no?
2: I uh,
3: you know, I thought it would in the mayoral race uh, when Leonard Krogh resigned as an MLA and ran for mayor. The Libs tried to create a wedge issue on the speculation tax and it didn't register at all. So I, I don't know. I mean, there are some parts of Nanaimo in this riding that there's kind of an enclave of wealthier homes in which you may have some snowbirds who own other properties elsewhere in the province or are coming here from somewhere else or live in, in uh, elsewhere in Canada. But for the majority of the rest of Nanaimo, the hardcore. NDP centers um, that keep this riding New Democrat for the last you know 14 of 16 elections. I, I, I think they subscribe to the philosophy of government that go after the 1% and tax them and make my life better uh, on the, the lower income scale and so maybe it doesn't resonate as much as we think it might.
1: Yeah, interesting. I would tend to, to probably agree with you. Okay, let's take a quick break here on Inside Politics on Radio L and we'll continue our conversation with Von Palmer and Rob Shaw on the other side.
0: News Now, Radio NL, 610 a.m. and RadioNL.com. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford.
1: Good morning and welcome. We're talking to the Vancouver Suns, Vaughn Palmer and Rob Shaw. Uh, Gentlemen, the Premier making his uh, usual address to the truck loggers convention yesterday, making some promises on the forestry front. Rob, I noticed your tweet as you were covering that, uh, mentioning that some of those promises uh, were welcomed with ovation. Well, the raw log side of things was met with more or less silence. Yeah,
3: you know, the Premier led with the popular promise in the room, which is this uh, issue over pricing that contractors and the and the truck loggers um, have had. There's been a facilitator, Dan Miller, the former premier, who's been trying to sort that out uh, for the government. And they announced uh, basically that the standard rate um, that the truck loggers wanted is what government's going to go with, and that got a big applause in the room. And then and the premier followed up with uh, talking about curtailing raw log exports for for which many of the people in that truck loggers room. Um, You know, raw log exports allow them to continue to work uh, because it is part of the economics that allow some, you know, companies and and people in that room to harvest certain blocks of timber in which, you know, the exporting log makes enough money to cover the rest of the less profitable trees in that particular block. So, you know, I think there are some in the New Democrats who still think that this government is going to ban raw log exports, the environmental wing, the Center for Policy Alternatives folks, the far left of the spectrum, what we heard from the Premier was a much more cautious uh, approach that they are simply going to use carrots and sticks, regulations and incentives. We don't know exactly what those are. One of the things that they're going to do is they're going to put in what's called um, harvest economics in the fee and lieu manufacturing for discharge to log exporters when you want to take a log out. Mm-hmm. That's basically going to try to Better align the value and the cost of a particular, you know, block of timber with the fee that you pay. So you can't run away with as much money, but you can also go at lower t- value timber and and maybe make a bit more. And I I, I don't hear a lot of people complaining about that. Um, you know, despite the silence in the room, there were positive comments from the truck loggers in general about the the conceptual move um, on forestry from the government. It's not as bad as they thought it was going to be. And somewhere in all of the vagaries uh, of the announcement, we'll get more details and probably this summer and then over the next year or so, and by the time we have the next election, we may actually have a fully fleshed out NDP forestry plan.
1: Well, uh, th- that's an issue that's near and dear to this part of the world here in the interior, and, Vaughn, uh, some, some welcome promises there. Uh, but it seems like a case of perhaps easier said than done.
4: Yeah,
2: look, every government of British Columbia gets the argument for keeping the logs here and getting value out of them. And if that's all there were to it, we wouldn't have log exports. Rob's right. It's part of the business model, particularly in some parts of the province where either there are no mills to mill the logs, so without Exports. There wouldn't be any logging at all, and where operating costs are very expensive. So, in effect, the exports subsidize domestic production. There's two other issues with it that explain a lot of the hesitation around cracking down on log export over the years. One of them is that along the coast now, particularly on the north coast, First Nations make use of a blanket cabinet order that exempts a lot of wood from, ex- from the, the export ban. So it's just allowed to export. Mm-hmm. Jobs locally for First Nations allows them to, sh- to send them off and get a good profit and keeps their logging crews working. Uh, the other issue is the United States. We had a big crackdown uh, on log exports and then we had to relax it uh, about, what, 15, 16 years ago under the liberals because the Americans take treat a ban on log exports as an unfair trade practice. And, you know, we argue it back and forth, and it goes on forever, but at the end of the day, if we go too far in restricting log exports, we open ourselves up to tariffs south of the border. So for all those reasons, the government has to be careful, and the other reason, and the other thing the Premier kind of left up in the air yesterday is, what are we going to do with the wood if we keep it here? Well, the answer is, we're going to encourage investment in production facilities, so that maybe be on those parts of the coast where there are no mills and that, there will be mills. It's a great vision, a great concept. But exactly how you persuade people to invest in, f- in forest production in British Columbia, new mills, uh, that's a challenge. It's going to be a challenge for any B.C. government. It'll be a challenge for an NDP government in particular.
1: Yeah, and one thing that's near and dear on that issue, especially for sawmill operators, is where they're getting their fiber from and where the licenses exist. And there was some talk uh, yesterday about sort of reducing the amount of waste fiber that's lying around out there and redirecting it to those local sawmills, which I can tell you will be welcome news here in the interior, and probably something that needs to be done, especially in light of all the wildfire activity and the waste wood lying around after that, Rob.
3: Yeah, I mean, there'll be more penalties for companies that don't bring the wood waste out to an accessible area where, um, you know, those who want to use that fiber can get it. And in particular, that is a, a coastal pulp and paper mill issue that uh, that the Premier cited, the, you know, the purchase of some catalyst mills out here on the island and, and the coast uh, by another company. They're clearly trying to help. That company keep a go of mills that otherwise might be in in a bit of trouble, but um, you know, it, it, the devil's in the details on this, and I, and it's we don't know what the incentives are, and we don't really know what the the regulatory stick is going to be on a lot of this stuff, and it just seems, you know, <clears throat> Richard Zussman, the Global BC colleague, uh, and uh, myself spoke to the truck loggers earlier in the week, uh, and um, they have a lot of concerns about. Other parts of the NDP tax basket, the employer health tax is hitting them hard as small businesses. And there are other ways the government could help uh, with both the contractors and the industry, and that involves probably being a bit more flexible with the taxation with them. And I'm not sure if that's on the agenda or not in any of these incentives, but if you want to encourage smaller local companies to come in and make use of this fiber and and value-add to it, uh, maybe you're going to have to lessen the old uh, one-two tax punch that uh, some of them are facing in the industry right now.
1: Well, on the fiber front, perhaps the government's spark is worse than its bite. Uh, we'll take a quick break here then, uh-huh. on the bottom of the air, <laughs> and uh, we'll put uh, the by-elections, uh, especially Nanaimo, under the spotlight with Rob Shaw and Von Palmer on the other side.
0: Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. For Kamloops Computer Center, you're
3: listening to
1: Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Good morning. Welcome back. We're talking to Rob Shaw and Vaughn Palmer. Uh, Guys, there's probably a a by-election that has not been so critical as the one that's looming in Nanaimo, January 30th. People there will vote. Uh, It is going to be a tight race by all polling accounts. Take for that what you will. But uh, uh, first off, uh, a full ballot. Uh, Everybody is in the dance in this thing. Uh, Vaughn, is is, is competition more than anything going to be the biggest factor here?
2: No I think the biggest factor is whether or not people want a general election. I mean this thing if the if the New Democrats lose the seat and the BC Liberals win uh, and however likely that is is a matter of debate, but if it happens, there'll be a tie in the legislature. And I think the premier is absolutely right when he says that the NDP needs to win this seat and beat the liberals, uh, for the government to survive. Uh, I, it can survive for a while, uh, with a tie vote in the house and the speaker breaking the tie, but, um, I don't think it would survive the full, uh, all the way to the scheduled next provincial election in 2021. So that's the big issue there. There's, I a. Mean, whole bunch of local issues, but the big question is, are people in uh, Nanaimo going to say, you know what, I'm kind of fed up with these guys already and uh, I think they're uh, going to vote Liberal and uh, force another election.
1: Uh, Rob, what's your read on, on Michelle Nay? Uh, so I'm talking to some of my Liberal sources. There, That's the one candidate they're keeping a very close eye on that they think is going to have a big impact.
3: She could. I mean, she has the pedigree as the daughter of the former mayor and MLA, long-time kind of legendary figure, Frank May. I think that theoretically could attract old social credit votes potentially to the, to the Greens. It plays in well with the idea that maybe some Green supporters are actually disaffected liberals who in 2017, hated Christy Clark, and now don't know what the party stands for and, and maybe they're going to vote Green. It's possible. She's not as experienced as Sheila Malcolmson. Uh, and uh, not as polished as Tony Harris and struggles sometimes to put her messaging out. But Andrew Weaver, the party leader, and Sonia Firstino and to, and Adam Olson are often there helping her. There's a question and answer in her campaign office tonight and Firstino and Weaver are going to be there standing beside her to field questions. I think the biggest issue in Nanaimo right now is that the Liberals are throwing a lot of local promises down, uh, improving the port, upgrading the hospital, the passenger ferry... Uh, to Vancouver, but they're running basically against the NDP's actions so far as a government. And if this is the precursor to a general election, you could be forgiven for not understanding whatsoever what the Liberals are actually running for. Um, They are criticizing the government's housing plan. I, you could waterboard me right now. I wouldn't be able to tell you what the Liberal housing plan is, if it even exists. <laughs> they criticize the NDP government's child care affordability, $10 a day uh, program, for not having a pilot center in, in Nanaimo. There is literally nothing that I know about the Liberal plan for child care. And so I wonder, and I, and I guess I, I question uh, in a certain extent, if the Liberals do think they're gonna, they're going to trigger a general election by winning this by-election, they better have their ducks in a row behind the scenes because there is no sense from watching their campaign up there how they are actually going to attract votes in a general election and what their solutions are to the affordability problems that dominated the 2017 election and saw them lose power. I, I, don't, I don't see that from any corner of the party that they've, they've figured out how to address those issues.
1: Vaughn, uh, uh, final question on this before we move on to some other issues but uh, the Premier notably, I talked to him earlier this week and he, and he told me that essentially if a Green wins or an NDP wins it, it both means success for him
2: Yes, it's interesting that he made allowance for the possibility of a Green win because uh, Weaver, running in Nanaimo, has been attacking the New Democrats and their candidate. He, uh, We quoted him a little earlier on what he says about the speculation tax, but he's called the NDP candidate there, uh, Malcolmson, an opportunist for giving up her federal seat and uh, seeking a provincial one. He says uh, you don't want to vote for her because she'll just be another NDP back. Backbencher twiddling her thumbs, taking instructions from 20-year-olds. If you want an independent voice in the legislature who will hold the government to account, you should be voting green. So Weaver is running against the NDP and also against the liberals. And I guess, you know, if you look at it from his point of view, uh, the Greens took 20% of the vote there last time. The Greens have to somehow or other differentiate themselves from the NDP. Or in the next general election, we won't have proportional representation. People are going to go, well, you know, If I want the government program, why wouldn't you vote NDP? And if you don't want it, why would you vote Green? Why wouldn't you vote Liberal?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Hey, uh, next week, uh, Mr. Plekis uh, is going to hold a Lamsey meeting, and (laughs) I don't know if we should all bring our barf bags to work or what the deal is with that, but uh, Rob, what are you expecting (laughs) out of that thing?
3: I expect it's going to be very hard to see what's going on in that room with all the smoke bombs that the NDP are going to be detonating there to obscure what's actually going on. If we've learned anything from the first couple of meetings of MLAs on this issue, it's that there is a political appetite on the NDP to give as many escape hatches, as many emergency ladders, as much cover as is possible for Daryl Plekis to survive, to live, to fight another day. They need him as Speaker. They can't afford to lose him because then the NDP would have to put a Speaker up and they don't have the seats. And so, Mike Farnworth is going to meander into that room and uh, duck, dip, dive, dodge, and dodge uh, his way through that meeting, and I sincerely doubt that Darrell Plekis is going to follow through on his promise to inform us all of the many spectacular wrongdoings that he has uncovered in his uh, uh, investigation of the legislature, because the NDP don't want him to.
2: Oh, he's also asking to, for another $100,000, $1, by the way. <laughs>
1: Yeah, uh, that's another whole other ball of wax. He wants the under $180,000 with no justification that I can see. Vaughn, would you read into that?
2: Well, he, he says he needs it for research and uh, travel and uh, and staffing uh, on top of, uh, what, the Speaker gets almost half a million bucks, and the uh, MLA gets another more than $100,000 for that. But he's an independent, and he says uh, the rules for independence are that he gets this extra money. He's entitled to it. He's advised the political parties that he expects that to be included in the budget for the year beginning April the 1st, and the parties went, we'll get back to you on it. Well, that's the other thing that's happening Monday, and, you know, well, Rob is right that the Greens and the New Democrats are, are trying to do everything they can to prop up Plecus It'll be interesting to see if that goes to the extent of also giving them another $180,000 um, for uh, research and staffing and travel and that sort of thing.
1: What a gong show. Uh, speaking of gong shows, uh, Rob, what did you think of this whole Karen Wang situation? Uh, I know it's federal politics, but in Burnaby South it was a headline grabber for the last 48 hours or so.
3: Yeah, well there's two theories. One is that this you know, makes it a lot easier for Jagmeet Singh, the NDP leader, to win um, that uh, by-election because the Liberals have kind of imploded, and they may or may not even produce another candidate to, to uh, replace Ms. Wang, who's now not allowed to come back as the candidate, even though she resigned and wants to return. So there's one theory, and the other is this kind of Machiavellian theory that maybe the Liberals are happy, or sorry, maybe uh, the Liberals are happy in a way um, that their candidate imploded, um, because uh, it allows Jagme to win and become the poison pill within the NDP, the leader with a seat who's weak, whose party is collapsing in the polls, and and possibly um, that works in the long-term favor for the Liberals. But, you know, like it's a pretty messy strategy, if that's, if that's <laughs> really what's going on. It involves accusations the party basically forced Ms. Wang to resign and wrote her statement for her and all sorts of stuff that is not reflecting well on the sunny disposition of a Liberal Party. Um, <laughs> it, maybe it works out for them in the long term, but it's, it's pretty messy now.
1: Yeah, von uh, Jagmeet Singh's been a, an interesting person. Uh, you have to think somewhere right now, he's going, thank God at least something's going my way.
2: Yeah, look, uh, in, in the past, party leaders uh, seeking a seat in the House of Commons, sometimes the other parties have just said, it's courtesy, uh, go ahead. You, we think you should be in the House, and there you go. So I think if the Liberals, if that had been their plan, they could have just not run a candidate against them at all, if the Greens are not doing. But uh, no, they decided to uh, run against them. They made a f- terrible choice. It sounds, uh, from the story in the Burnaby paper, uh, Shane, that uh, that the local provincial liberals because they had her as a candidate in the provincial election warned the national party this was not necessarily a great choice the national party didn't listen so they're reaping the benefit of that yeah uh, yeah I mean Singh has got problems the NDP nationally has political problems uh The Liberals, uh, federally, nationally, are probably thinking uh, they got their eyes on Quebec. They want to scoop up some of those seats in Quebec that Jack Layton won, probably not even thinking that much about the seat in British Columbia.
1: Yeah, we'll have to see. My Liberal contacts tell me Karen Wang is a bit cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. But anyway, uh, gentlemen, good to talk to you. I look forward to uh, picking up the show and uh, seeing you again every Friday. Okay, bye-bye. There we go. There's Vaughn Palmer and Rob Shaw from the Vancouver Sun. We're going to take a quick break here on Inside Politics. On the other side, Attorney General David Eby joins us.
0: Local news now. Radio NL, 610 a.m. and RadioNL.com. Keeping you informed from both sides.
1: For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome back to Inside Politics. Uh, pleasure to have on the phone a guy who had a very busy 2018 and apparently is already planning in a busy new year ahead, uh, Attorney General David Eby. Dave, welcome. How are
4: you? Good, Shane. How are you?
1: Yeah, I'm fine. Uh, why don't we jump into the thick of this right away. Uh, you, were, uh, you were in Kamloops in July. Uh, you told us all that this project was full steam ahead. Uh, yesterday, the BCLC headquarters project uh, essentially dead in the water. What happened?
4: Yeah, let me just start, uh, Shane. I think this is my first NL interview since the news about Angelo's passing, and I just wanted to pass on uh, my regards to his family and the colleague Sarah at NL. He was very interested in this issue, and we talked about it a lot. Um, as, as far as the headquarters uh, goes, uh, the uh, the initial uh, interview in, in July, uh, it was full speed ahead. Uh, we brought in a new board at BC Lottery Corporation. We have an entirely new board there, and they said, quite reasonably, Uh, Let's bring in a third party, Partnerships BC, to do a review of this building proposal and make sure there's good value for taxpayer money. Partnerships BC uh, did that review and they came back and said, well, actually, the building is in uh, very good condition. Uh, It requires uh, new boilers. It uh, needs new cladding on the outside. Uh, The data center uh, needs to be upgraded. Um, But these costs are a fraction of what a new build would be. And uh, you need to think very carefully about this. And, in fact, uh, we recommend that you stay in the existing building, do the necessary upgrades. There are no safety issues. Uh, and uh, and uh, move along. And, frankly, in terms of taxpayer dollars, uh, when we have a decision between about uh, 10 to $15 million uh, in upgrades for a building uh, and a $100 million new build that's not necessary, uh, I congratulate the BCLC board for uh, making what is a difficult call Uh, but a necessary call.
1: Uh, How does that sort of run with with some of the comments that we have had over the years from a number of people, including the incoming new board chair, uh, who said this building is is run down and does in fact need to be replaced?
4: Well, it was the new board chair who uh, who actually requested the Partnerships BC review. um, And Partnerships BC is independent of... uh, of government. It uh, has its own board and it uh, did a review of the existing documentation uh, and the analysis that had been done. And, uh, and their recommendation is very clear. The report's available to the public. They can all have a look at it. So when we're putting you know, a, a quarter of a billion dollars into a new patient care, care center at Kamloops, uh, money into Thompson Rivers University uh, and other priorities uh, for Kamloops, um, people need to understand that there are limited tax dollars to do that and we need to make responsible decisions. BCLC headquarters will stay in Kamloops All staff expansion is going to be at Kamloops. There's no uh, capacity in Vancouver to add more staff. And I've heard, frankly, some outrageous claims from uh, previous ministers on this file that there are 400 uh, additional staff members coming on at BCLC. I'm not sure quite what they would be doing at BC Lottery Corporation, but in any event, as staff do gradually increase, as BCLC's role increases with population, uh, there will be capacity in this building, and uh, we'll make that available, certainly. Uh, But the reality is that when a third party comes in and does a review and says the building's in good shape, it needs minor upgrades, uh, it's irresponsible to build an entirely new building. I know that's disappointing for a lot of people, uh, but sometimes uh, when you're in government, uh, it, it involves difficult decisions. And for the BCLC board, I congratulate them for making the tough decision here.
1: Was there any talk behind the scenes, Dave, about, uh, like, you know, we've had an explosion of interest and news and outrage in the money laundering file. Was there any talk or, or thought behind the scenes that maybe now is not the time to throw $100 million at BCLC because of the money laundering situation?
4: It's totally unrelated to, uh, to the money laundering issue in the sense that, uh, uh, that maybe there was a, a sense that uh, the public would be concerned about putting money into BCLC at a time when, Uh, when it's under such scrutiny. Uh, If the building was inappropriate, we'd be dealing with the building. Uh, But it it is related in a broad sense to the money laundering issue in that the previous government uh, did not have sufficient oversight in place to ensure that responsible decisions were being made in relation to BCLC. They spent uh, over $7 million on an anti-money laundering computer program that didn't work, uh, and that money is gone. Uh, They (laughs) apparently... Uh, We're full speed ahead on replacing a building that didn't need to be replaced uh, because the existing building uh, is sufficient and has a a life ahead of it. Uh, They uh, needed to have better oversight of BCLC, and they didn't. And it's not BCLC's fault. Uh, We have a great uh, board in there now, and our government is committed to oversight of gambling in a different way than the previous government was. Uh, And uh, and we'll do that. And BCLC will remain a proud uh, institution in Kamloops for many, many years. And uh, it's exciting about the future of BCLC and Camloops. And not only that, what's exciting is all the investments we're putting in Camloops, whether it's patient care at the universities, uh, summer games, uh, schools, teachers. Uh, it's a it's a new day in Camloops, and uh, we're really proud of what's happening in Camloops.
1: Okay. Um, that said, if we're sticking with an existing building, uh, we have a couple of problems on that front. One, it is aging. Uh, two, it holds the computer infrastructure uh, that the BCLC needs with the e-gaming and all of that kind of jazz. Uh, and three, uh, it seems like there is going to be some employment growth there uh, over a longer period of time, perhaps. But... Um, is there going to be any money as far as, okay, we're sticking with the building, uh, we need to do some renovations, we need to ensure the computer systems are okay, we need to create some office space, I don't know if you lease some elsewhere, you redesign the building as it is or do some renovations internally. Is there any money coming in that front?
4: Yeah, The, the Partnerships BC report lays out some really good options for BC Lottery Corporation's board to consider uh, in terms of the data centre, which would remain in Kamloops and would be uh, duplicated for uh, safety to make sure that uh, in the event of, uh, of catastrophic failure at one site, that there would be redundancy uh, so that, uh, so that uh, the, the sites wouldn't go down That's something that doesn't currently exist. Uh, and in addition, there's a need for uh, expanded warehouse space uh, so that BCLC and Kamloops can continue to uh, distribute uh, 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 gaming uh, equipment and uh, materials and so on. Uh, out of Kamloops, uh, there's no suggestion that that would be moving out of Kamloops, and so there are good options for the board there. Uh, and so uh, these will require various investments in the building, and it's just like a house. Uh, it needs new boilers, it needs new cladding, uh, and so uh, you know you you wouldn't tear down your house because you needed new aluminum siding and you needed a new furnace. Uh, so those will be dealt with. It'll be a safe and appropriate place for uh, BCLC employees to work, and uh, we'll make sure that uh, it's a proud place for uh, Kamloops uh, going into the future.
1: All right, uh, changing topics to money laundering. Uh, So far, we've learned more about the scope of this problem, now estimated to reach into the billions of dollars a year here in this province, something apparently known to the Mounties and to the federal government, but not so much to the province itself. Uh, Police don't seem to have the manpower or the funds to properly tackle the problem. Prosecutors appear outgunned, apparently don't even have the resources to vet huge amounts of digital evidence. Uh, All this must add up to a pretty big concern, as well as a lingering question, what do we do?
4: Yeah, we uh, this this it's it's fascinating. Uh, Shane, you know, you pull on one thread, which was these uh, these individuals bringing these duffel bags full of cash into BC casinos in the in the Lower Mainland, and it has uh, led to an entire uh, network of uh, allegations around uh, yes, billions of dollars in uh, real estate uh, in annual transactions taking place at just one uh, facility that has uh, ties to. alleged ties to cartels in Mexico to Middle Eastern crime. It's just astounding uh, to me what is coming out of the RCMP and the federal government and international observers like the DEA, uh, the Drug Enforcement Agency in the United States. Um, And so uh, one of the things that we've been doing is pushing really hard. I've now uh, presented multiple times to my colleagues in other provinces and to the federal government, to an all-party finance committee in Ottawa, saying we need the federal government on board. Uh, We finally have a minister assigned to work with BC, Bill Blair, uh, who is uh, meeting with us next week. Uh, And uh, we'll be having a conversation with him about the need for the province to have better information from the feds about what's happening uh, so that we can use civil forfeiture, so that we can uh, engage in prosecutions, so we can do tax investigations if the feds aren't going to do them. And uh, we'll do everything we can at the provincial level, and we have. Uh, in terms of the casinos, and uh, Dr. German's working on real estate as a second phase. We really need the feds at the table uh, on this in order to deal with it effectively.
1: Okay, uh, can you give me an update on on where we are with the phase two German report? Last time you and I chatted was probably a month or so ago. Now uh, it was going through terms of reference and that sort of thing. Is this thing now off the runway and, and headed headed out into doing something, or where are we at?
4: Yeah, Dr. German's team is working hard. Um, I expect that we'll see his reporting out uh, come in phases. So. Uh, There were a number of different questions asked, everything from can you look into horse racing to uh, luxury cars, which apparently you can buy for cash uh, and sell overseas as part of a money laundering scheme. So he's looking into that. He's looking into real estate. Uh, So expect to see phased reports from him as they start to come in. I expect horse racing will be the first one that the public uh, and I will be seeing from Dr. German just in terms of his preliminary report back to me. Uh, And uh, his entire uh, report is due to us by the end of March.
1: Okay. Um, Still with the money laundering file, uh, we learned in recent weeks, thanks to the more great work by Sam Cooper, that the e-pirate prosecution, which fell apart, and I know you were disappointed by, uh, did so because prosecutors mistakenly exposed the identity of a police informant. Uh, For your reaction?
4: Yeah, I can't talk about that specific case or confirm whether or not that's why the prosecution went, went awry, but what I can say is that it's pretty obvious to me, Uh, that uh, there is insufficient capacity. It's pretty obvious to British Columbians as well. It's insufficient capacity to investigate, prosecute, and convict on uh, money laundering and serious organized crime in our province. It's one of two prosecutions, actually, at the federal level that collapsed uh, during the Christmas break and just shortly after. A giant uh, federal drug prosecution also collapsed. Uh, And uh, these are really worrying signs because I know that there are a significant number of investigations that were either never initiated or never brought to prosecution um, because uh, literally uh, hundreds and hundreds of reports were filled out at BC casinos about people bringing in bags of cash. And uh, as far as I know, nobody uh, followed up on that. And if that was happening in casinos, where else was that happening in terms of organized crime? Uh, Increasingly, uh, Vancouver and uh, British Columbia has uh, gathered an international reputation about being a hub of money laundering and organized crime. We need to fix that. Um, and so uh, it's, uh, it's a big issue and, and part of it is the prosecutors and part of it is the uh, RCMP resources to be able to go after this at the federal level because it has so many international connections.
1: Uh, The other thing that I find really concerning, and Sam Cooper has also reported on this, is the possibility some casino staff here in BC are under investigation for possible connections to money laundering suspects. I'd love your reaction on that as well as as to ask you, you know, considering the mammoth amounts of money uh, that is being thrown around here from the criminal underworld, international crime organizations, etc. Do you have concerns that people are literally being uh, paid off or, or bought either now or in the past?
4: So everyone that works in gaming in British Columbia uh, is picked to review by the Gaming Policy Enforcement Branch. I read uh, Mr. Cooper's story about this, and it's important uh, to note that although I can't talk about any individual cases, uh, that it was Ontario's regulator who was coming to the Gaming Policy Enforcement Branch asking for information that they had about gaming workers and uh, and gathering information from our regulator. So if our regulator has the information, people are going to lose their gaming license That if they are engaging in conduct that's inappropriate. Um, And uh, and that does happen in British Columbia, whether it's cheating at play or whether it's facilitating improper transactions, whatever the issue is, people will lose their license to be in the gaming industry in B.C. Uh, One of the issues uh, that we faced in the past was that uh, despite the regulator raising the alarm around money laundering and concerns about what was happening in the casino based on actual reports coming from casino staff, uh, the government failed to take the necessary action of saying we won't accept this cash anymore anymore. Well, we've taken that action of stopping the cash uh, from coming into the casinos, uh, the unsourced cash over $10,000, and uh, we'll take the other actions necessary as soon as there's any indication that someone has a connection to organized crime, they will be removed from the gaming industry. And it's also, frankly, why it's taking a while to do the cannabis licenses is because we're doing very in-depth background checks of people to make sure they don't have connections to organized crime in the cannabis sector
1: as well. All right. Uh, let's back clean up here in a couple of uh, spare issues. Ron Nairn, president of the Trial Lawyers Association of BC. with a, a, a bit of a ridiculous attack on you, frankly, but I'll quote EB's approach here, and he's talking about uh, your approach to limiting uh, the the legal uh, fees and obligations uh, for ICBC as you overhaul it, but it is smacks of Donald Trump-like two-faced hypocrisy. How can the attorney general blame lawyers for increased labor costs when under his watch, ICBC is adopting a strategy of unreasonable low-ball sediment, sediment Settlement proposals that fall short of what the law demands for injured victims. Your reaction?
4: Uh, So we've seen uh, double-digit increases in settlements and awards for plaintiffs uh, for the last two years, uh, and a 260% increase in the awards for plaintiffs with minor injuries over the last 10 years. So I'm not quite sure uh, what Mr. Nairn is talking about in terms of low-ball offers or people being shorted in terms of what their entitlements are. But I do understand uh, why he's concerned. He's the president of the trial lawyers. Uh, We have a lot of uh, plaintiff side lawyers in this province that do ICBC work, and I don't blame the lawyers. The lawyers are working within the system that we have, and the system is broken. So what we're doing is we're introducing some proportionality. If you have a more minor injury, you'll be going to the Civil Resolution Tribunal. You will not go to B.C. Supreme Court with all the expenses that that brings. Uh, you will not be allowed to access unlimited pain and suffering awards for a more minor injury. These are reasonable measures to get costs under control. And those two measures alone, Shane, will save a billion dollars for ICBC projected and um, will enable us to increase benefits for lost wages, for housekeeping, for counselling, physiotherapy that haven't been increased since the 90s. So these are long, long overdue changes for the last province in Canada to make these changes. And uh, and although I understand the concerns of Mr. Uh, Nairn, I'm I'm not uh, sure that it quite qualifies as two-faced Donald Trump hypocrisy, but, uh, but he's entitled to his opinion.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, ending with this, on the liquor front, you're being lobbied to ease restrictions and allow more competition within the liquor industry. Uh, sound idea, and could it, if we do indeed forge ahead, uh, could it see a price drop at the local eatery or watering hole?
4: Well, uh, about... Uh, Six to eight months ago, uh, we had uh, Mark Hicken, uh, who's a lawyer that specialized in liquor policy, do a review of uh, our system and and have conversations with industry about what needs to be fixed. Uh, He produced a report with a bunch of recommendations that are forming the backbone of reforms to liquor policy in the province. Uh, So we are looking at improvements around uh, how hospitality, hospitality, uh, restaurants and bars interacts with uh, government uh, liquor agencies. And that review and his recommendations apparently attracted the uh, attention of the federal uh, competition commissioner, uh, who commended us for doing this work and, uh, and encouraged us in a certain direction. We'll certainly take those comments into consideration, and I believe very firmly that we can do a better job for hospitality, and uh, we're working on that
1: right now. Perfect. Uh, You've been gracious with your time. Uh, It's good to talk to you. Happy New Year and uh, thanks for the note about Angelo off the top. As you can imagine, it's been a tough go here and we appreciate uh, the words from you and, and from many, many others on that front. Yeah, we, we all miss them, and Thanks very much, Shane, for the time. That was this province's Attorney General, David Eby. We'll take a quick break here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. Standing by, listening in, and with a response to what David Eby had to say about BCLC, is former Kamloops Mayor, current Kamloops North Thompson MLA, Peter Milibar.
0: Local news now. Radio NL, 610 AM and Radio com.
1: Welcome back to Inside Politics. The B.C. Lottery Corporation's rebuilding project of its downtown Kamloops headquarters went out the window here in Kamloops yesterday after three years of talk, glowing talk, about where the project was going. Uh, recently, is last summer, the Attorney General himself saying that this was uh, this project was all systems go. So anyway, he's had a response to uh, the recent development, the Attorney General, that is, uh, standing by and taking a listen to that response was former Kamloops Mayor, current Kamloops MLA, Peter Milibar. Okay, Peter, you heard uh, what the Attorney General General David Eby had to say on on the scrapping of the uh, headquarters replacement project here in Kamloops. Uh, I'm sure you've got a, a few things you want to sound off about. What, uh, topping the list? What did you have? Like, what? Where do you think he went wrong there?
5: Well, I, I mean, uh, my understanding is, lotteries has an 80,000 square foot uh, platinum lead built building in the Lower Mainland that sits half full that has a 30,000-square-foot uh, warehouse attached to it, yet we hear the Attorney General say that there's no capacity for any new staff in the Lower Mainland. Our concern has always been about the bleed-off of staff and the no, no longer future expansion of staff. The Attorney General tells says that we're, uh, he doesn't know where we're getting these expansion numbers from, yet in his next sentence he starts talking about how they would be expanding services and distribution in Kamloops. Um, and so that that's at total odds. I, you know, none of this holds any... Um, anything in a smell test. Uh, you can't have a three-year-in-a-row project uh, being talked about, uh, continual heads uh, spanning political spectrum, spanning two different governments. I asked the Attorney General point-blank to his face during estimates. Mr. Lightbody was sitting right behind him. If we were on target, on scope, on scale, on timeline for the, the replacement, uh, Minister Eby confirmed that to my face. He then came on on uh, your radio station in August or July, confirmed that same process was all well underway. That was like five months ago now. Uh, the new head of BC Lottery's board in August confirmed that everything was a go. And then in fact, after his site visit, he can see why the building needs to be replaced because it's, uh, it's no longer got any function to it. Uh, there's people working in that building that can't see a window while they're working. They don't get any natural daylight. Uh, they have had no assurances yesterday that they will see any daylight anytime in the future. They, they will attempt to try to make some accommodations, but not, this is not a modern workspace. And the fact that they are now scrambling around trying to cling to one report, um, that who knows how that got generated after three and a half years of looking at this. Yeah. I want to ask you about that. Cause he does, he's
1: trying to put it a bit of an arm's length. It's not coming from his ministry. It's not coming from the province. It's coming from BCLC. So he's very carefully says that, and he puts the blame on this third party review by the agency that says, oh, listen. Buildings, just fine. You you obviously don't buy that.
5: No, but last time I looked out the window here at NL, the sky was still blue. I don't believe that in the least. Uh, This has the fingerprints of political interference all over it. Um, it was it was a political decision in the first place for BCLC to come here. You only have to go through your own archives to find uh, how many editorials over the last 30 years uh, Jim Harrison wrote about the constant uh, attack and threat of BCLC moving out of Kamloops and, and BCLC reducing itself to a shell and, and name only as a headquarters. Uh, this is nothing new, and and the city needs to be very concerned about this because, mark my words, the same excuses for delays will come out of, of Minister Fleming's mouth when it comes to uh, school capital. Uh, he has committed to Surrey that there will be no new, no portables at all in Surrey in the next three years, not the rest of the province. Uh, Minister Fleming has decided that only Surrey should have no portables whatsoever. Uh, that money has to come from somewhere and you watch the Valley View money or the Westmount money will magically show up in Surrey at a new school there. The Patello Bridge was $1.4 billion that the, the province with no business plan or no reason to take over that bridge from the municipalities whatsoever jumped right in and to decided to spend money on that. And now when a crown corporation that generates them one point four billion dollars of profit a yearly is saying that they need uh, a new building to meet the technological demands of the future, to meet the, the employee growth that they project in Kamloops for the future. They're saying that business case doesn't make any sense. How is it that every other capital project in this province that this government is undertaking is able to somehow magically come in on time and on budget and on scope, and yet suddenly BC Lottery's building after three years of planning at the 11th hour is suddenly double the price and the contractors get notified 30 minutes before they notify the public that this is uh, indeed what's happening.
1: Yeah. Uh, two two quick questions on this front. Uh, number one, on the business case itself, my understanding is that they would have developed this new building on that unused triangle piece of land and perhaps part of the parkade. Then they would turn around and redevelop what is the existing footprint and that's where the possible of a new city hall among I would assume commercial and some other stuff. So um, to me, you've got, you've got a multi-faceted real estate deal. The building of a new structure is expensive, certainly but then you've got this lease back to the city potentially on a new city hall. If that's a possibility, you've got the commercial leases, you've got all the stuff and whatever they do with the redevelopment. Does that not weigh off against whatever the potential cost would be? I would think it would.
5: Well, and and that's the other red herring they're throwing out there is the overall cost of the building. Let's remember that this was designed in such a way to shelter the taxpayer from extra costs, from extra um, additions to the building in terms of other tenants or things like that. Uh, they, they had asked the four proponents for two different proposals. One to build for BC Lotteries and BC Lotteries owns it, lock, stock and barrel. And one to build it and lease back a, a portion of the building to BC Lotteries. So the fact that the the dollar figure may have gone up, we haven't had any uh, clarification around that. The fact that for years we've been told that the parkade is, is a separate uh, structure from the, the existing building and that Structurally sound, and that they've put five million dollars into it to upgrade it. Um, Why are they allowing people to park on it if it's so decrepit uh, that uh, they can't continue to use it? Um, This none of this makes any sense. It's total excuse making by by the attorney general. Um, Like I said, uh, there's no magic to why he suddenly came out with uh, uh, with uh, a. routine update on what's happening with money laundering. Money laundering is absolutely a very important thing and we need to be cracking down on it. But uh, if anyone tracks the Attorney General's uh, way of doing things, um, whenever the heat starts to get turned up on him, he magically comes out with some update on what's going on with the money laundering file, which is usually about the same as what was happening with the last update because he seems to be getting in hot water a lot these days. He did the same post uh, Uh, Proportional uh, Representation Referendum. Uh, Instead of answering questions about that, he started talking about money laundering again. Um... I have no faith uh, that the Attorney General uh, did not uh, step in and his staff step in and and make sure that this project has been killed and that Treasury Board decided not to approve it. And if they've decided not to approve this project for Kamloops, uh, you watch, because all the the great uh, things that the Attorney General was talking about being done in Kamloops right now, those were all announced and and, uh, started under the former government. They weren't started by the BC BC NDP, they weren't uh, initiated by the BC NDP, and the funding was already in place. Uh, for the most part through Treasury Board, uh, not by the BC NDP. So uh, they have a lot to answer for as to why the first time they have a major project that would provide major employment suddenly gets shelved um, as they're heading into budget, scrambling to find money uh, for certain ridings down the Lower Mainland that they hold.
1: Uh, Last question here, uh, something that I sort of, uh, you know, you're making these comments and you're obviously out of the province and and you do have some degree of of right to be that. But uh, you also seem to be a little upset with the reaction from the city. You're a former mayor of this city. I know Ken Christian yesterday said he was disappointed, but uh, seems sort of contained in his reaction. Are you disappointed with what you're hearing from the city as far as the level of of how they're kind of expressing themselves in the, in, with this news,
5: I, I'm frankly I'm surprised how um, you know some of the reaction from the, the business community and, and other organizations has been on this. Um, the reality is, people need to take a step back and remember what it was like. It, it has not always been uh, so easy to get government buildings upgraded in this city. We we had to fight to keep the land titles office in this city. We had to fight uh, as a city, and Al McNair led the charge at the time. Uh, a grassroots uh, initiative to get Thompson Rivers University to be made from a university college to a university. We've had to fight tooth and nail uh, to get any upgrades and expansions at the university. We've had to fight, and I can speak from experience. I mean, I swore on this radio station about the hospital, and, and uh, we had to fight hard to get uh, not just the clinical services building, but to continue to fight to make sure that the, the next building is being built, which we're now seeing uh, underway. Uh, you know, that is the type of thing that's had to happen in Kamloops over and over again. We've had to fight repeatedly around uh, maintaining BC Lotteries and, and to be a very strong corporate uh, entity in Kamloops, and, and we need to step it up. I mean, you think uh, back to, and, and you might not have been in Kamloops at the time, but when Telus pulled their their major office out of Kamloops, how outraged everybody was. Uh, this is the equivalent of that. I said uh, yesterday, can you name me any other town? Can you can you imagine if for four years uh, the province had been promising merit a uh, major uh, uh, highways uh, maintenance yard that would employ say 40 people on the merit scale and then uh, at the 11th hour just before they're going to give out contracts say oh we're not doing it anymore what would the reaction of merit be what's the reaction in chase when uh, when the ambulance uh, suddenly has uh, one less ambulance on the road or in Barrier, or in Clearwater when they lose a forestry uh, officer this is this is for Kamloops very significant it is 250 future jobs it is making sure we're the technological hub I noticed the Attorney General uh, uh, said that they need to build a redundant uh, data center. He didn't say where that will be located. Uh, you watch, it'll somehow wind up in the seismically un- uh, unsecure area of the lower mainland uh, in that brand new platinum Lead building that was okay for the lower mainland, but somehow we're supposed to, as the head office, not the corporate office that they replaced down there, uh, struggle through with a 55-year-old department store. That building would be old as a department store, let alone it's supposed to be a technological hub for BC lotteries. People Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Great. Thank you. That was the MLA for Kamloops
1: North Thompson, Peter Milibar, and that's it for the first Inside Politics of this new year. We'll see you again here on Radio NL for edition number two next week.
0: 106.7 Logan Lake, 98.1 Blue River, 97.5 Ebola from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM, local news now.